This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I grabbed out of the quarter pile sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 192nd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at Shazam 26 from DC Comics, cover dated November, December 1976. But first, well, actually, I'm putting this episode together before the one before it actually comes out yet. So I don't actually have any feedback to go over. Which means it's time to get our Shazam on. And yes, if I were any better at planning and search engine optimization and publicity and, you know, generally doing stuff to get more listeners, yes, I should have covered this comic six weeks ago when the second Shazam movie was fresh and new in the cinema. Please, nobody tell Zachary Levi about this oversight of mine. I'm already embarrassed enough about the timing of this episode. Shazam! And yes, it has an exclamation point, so I am pronouncing that exclamation point any chance I get. Shazam! 26. At a cover price of 30 cents, meaning I acquired this comic at a frankly pretty measly 17% markdown. The cover by Ernie Chua slash Chan and Kurt Schaffenberger shows DC's Captain Marvel doing one of the things we all love to see in comic books, let alone on the cover. Our hero is punching a dinosaur. That's right. He's punching a dinosaur. And in the background, we see the U.S. Capitol. And we are asked this question. Can the world's mightiest mortal stop the plot to kidnap Congress? And the big red cheese is saying, holy moly, a dinosaur about to crush the Capitol. Which raises a very interesting question that I hope is discussed in depth inside this comic book. Would it be better for the future of America, for the U.S. Congress to be kidnapped or crushed? It's a tough call. I can imagine the entire comic will debate this fascinating conundrum. I should also add that my cover has the top few inches sliced off, meaning an unscrupulous newsstand owner or convenience store manager got the full refund for not selling this comic and then entered it into the black market. And since I got it for 25 cents, I would like to thank that unscrupulous newsstand owner or convenience store manager for having my back. The story, the case of the kidnapped Congress, which I guess spoils the fact that they weren't crushed and instead just 
Kidnapped, was written by E. Nelson Bridwell with art from Kurt Schaffenberg. We start on a bright morning as Billy Batson walks towards his job at station WHIZ. His reminiscences about a recent adventure with the JLA are cut short when he comes upon a massive traffic jam, which somehow he concludes is worse than the regular traffic jams he experiences in New York City. That sounds like a superpower. He shazams himself and takes to the skies to see what's holding things up at the Brooklyn Bridge. And arriving on the scene, he sees that there is no bridge. In its place is a billboard or sign featuring a bald scientist's face. And this message to Captain Marvel, this is just a sample of what you'll find in Washington, you big red cheese, Savannah. The nice thing is that the name Savannah is actually in, in script. It's presented as a signature, so it's nice that he paid extra for that service from the billboard company. So Captain Marvel flies to the deserted subway tunnel and finds that Mary, Freddie, and Dudley have also been summoned. Billy does not recognize Dudley at first behind his new mustache, or as Billy calls it, lip spinach. And as a longtime mustachioed American... I find that language hurtful and insulting. Is it possible to cancel a 47-year-old comic book? Well, the eponymous wizard is summoned, tasking Billy with stopping Savannah, who has boasted that he will destroy America city by city. Billy's concerns over his job at Wiz are alleviated, as Uncle Dudley, not his biological uncle, it is pointed out, has arranged for Billy to travel the nation doing a series of reports on young people in a TV van to be driven by Dudley. As the wizard says, he must become Billy's mentor. Mary and Freddie are tasked with picking up the slack for Billy as he travels the nation. And the wizard empowers Billy to directly contact the elders that give him his powers. Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury, with a thinking cap of sorts, a, a device called the Eterni Phone, or the Etern iPhone. Coincidence? I think not. Departing, they look upon the images of the seven deadly sins and note that Sivana embodies six of them. Pride, envy, greed, hatred, selfishness, and injustice, while nobody can accuse him of laziness. That fiend is always busy with some sort of devilish scheme. Outside, magic words are spoken, and Freddy and Mary fly off in one direction, while Captain Marvel flies in the other, with Dudley holding on to his left leg for all that he is worth. At the station, Billy and Dudley find the van and take off on their journey with all their friends wishing them well, including one of the all-time greatest DC characters ever. No, I'm not kidding. Talkie Tawny. Sorry, sorry. Mr. Talkie 
Otani. And so the boy reporter starts out on his journey across the continent, accompanied by his mustachioed mentor. Their first job? Let's find Savannah and learn what he's done with the Brooklyn Bridge. Which I don't think is the best grammar ever. And learn what he's done? The next morning, the van rolls into the nation's capital and past the White House. Which, yes, does make sense based on Savannah's sign threatening Washington. But I have to admit that I was confused for a while about looking for the Brooklyn Bridge in Washington, D.C. Also, they don't seem in that much of a rush, stopping to say goodbye to everyone at the station and then driving the van down I-95 when flying is an option. I guess if you've got the van, you use the van. Billy meets a local reporting colleague, Chet, outside the Capitol, where Chet's son, Rod, is a Senate page. Rod and Billy are about the same age, and they hang out while Chet returns to cover debate inside on a boring tax bill. Then all of a sudden, holy moly, the Capitol vanished while we had our backs turned, with Chet in there. And then possibly, within earshot and eyeline of Rod, Billy shazams himself to survey the whole area looking for clues. Finding nothing, Captain Marvel decides to see if there were any eyewitnesses in the area. Because he and Mentor and Rod were not eyewitnesses because they were looking the wrong way at the time of the disappearance. But some of the people he runs into are sort of on my page about this whole thing. You mean we're rid of that whole crowd? Let's hear it for the building thief. And one person just cheers, Yay! One hopes that the vice president was in the building too. The naive Captain Marvel learns a very important lesson at this point. Holy moly, Congress must be doing some awfully bad things lately. Not just lately, Cap. More like regularly. At that moment, a fiendishly familiar face comes on TV, and by plot contrivance and story convenience, Captain Marvel happens to be standing in front of a TV store. Savannah admits that he stole Congress, and that they have 24 hours to proclaim him rightful ruler of the universe, which just as an aside, I do not believe is within congressional authority and also turn all power over to him, blah, blah, blah. It's power I want, not money. I already have a hundred million to use. Note, as an important clue, he does not say what he has a hundred million of. Captain Marvel has no clue on how to proceed, so he calls one of the elders on the attorney phone. And I know what you're thinking. This is just the kind of situation that would benefit from the, I don't know, let me think, wisdom of Solomon, maybe? But no, he seeks advice from a muscle man, Hercules, who it does turn out is educated and quotes some Shakespeare about time unfolding what plated cunning hides. Putting together the clues, 
the 100 million in unfolding time. Captain Marvel decides to fly into the past, 100 million years into the past. And then, in the exact location that New York City will eventually be, is the Brooklyn Bridge. Replacing that, he flies back to the past and locates the capital. He brought it back 100 million years in time. But just as he finds the capital, remember the cover image? A terrifying form lumbers from the jungle. It's a Tyrannosaurus, and it looks hungry. But one punch to the chin from the world's mightiest mortal does the job. Mr. Hungry seems to have lost his appetite. But he can't move the capital through time, as he did the bridge, because the capital is occupied. I'm not sure you people would survive the ultra-light speed. With no evidence whatsoever, he concludes that Savannah is probably in the building somewhere, so he de-shazams and climbs through a small window only to be grabbed by a caveman? A caveman in the employ of Savannah? A caveman who now has his huge meaty paws across Billy's mouth. But he bites the caveman's finger, and as Savannah is screaming to not let him say, he says, Shazam! And on the last page, in the same way that he punched the dinosaur on the chin, he dispatches the caveman, and after threatening Savannah with the same uh, consequences, Savannah takes his place at the time travel device and places the capital in its rightful place. For better or worse, we can debate that. But Rod is happy because he got some great shots of Captain Marvel on his portable battery-powered camera. But before Savannah can be grabbed again, he disappears. See you in Philadelphia. The end. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. And we're back. As I was reading this issue, I noted that it certainly had the feel of a significant reboot. And taking a look at the title's history, I see that that hunch is very much confirmed. This volume of Shazam started in 1973 and often featured one or two new stories filled out with Golden Age reprints. Now, these new stories were drawn by C.C. Beck, so they really hit that original Shazam vibe. They transitioned into 100-page books for six issues. I think some of us of a certain vintage remember those glory days of DC Comics. 
Uh, Those hundred pagers were largely old-timey reprints. When it went back to standard size with issue 18, they did three issues of all new content before issues 21 through 24 contained, again, all reprint, all Golden Age stories. And all of that changed with the issue right before this one. Issue 25 ushered in the DC TV branding with this title, Isis and Welcome Back, Cotter. If I'm missing one or two, let me know. But I think that might be all of them. Uh, That issue, the one before this, featured an Isis-Shazam team-up really hitting the Saturday morning TV show tie-in vibe. That issue also had a backup that leads into this one in terms of turning the storyline, turning the title towards the TV show in terms of, of format. All of that leads us to this issue, issue 26, with Dudley as mentor, and setting up the idea of the two of them visiting various American cities, again inspired by the TV format, and like I said, bringing quite a reboot to this title. In terms of this specific issue, I do want to cover the rest of the content in this issue before we get to analysis and commentary of the story itself. Again, Speaking as someone in, let's say, their mid-50s, bordering on late 50s, these books from the 1970s have a lot of nostalgia. So I do want to talk about some of the other stuff in this issue. And early on, we run across a hostess ad but it's one I barely remember. It's not exactly one of the classics, I don't think. In Green Lantern and the Fruit Pie scene, Dr. Live, and if you spell that backwards, you'll know what trouble you're in, shrinks GL and puts him in a glass jar for his collection, but the power ring instantly enlarges him and the other captives and they all enjoy their fruit pies with the tender light crust. Defeated, the bad guy says he'll have to change his name to Dr. Rezal. Spell it backwards, and you'll know what he means. Now look, I'm not saying that these one-page stories often have detailed, in-depth plots, but they usually manage to tie in the hostess product way better than this one did. This one I found quite lacking. Spoilers, but I had similar concerns about the actual main story in this issue as well. Now, ad-wise, the highlight for me was the two-page spread promoting the upcoming CBS Saturday morning schedule. I will talk about this fact more in a few minutes, but I was out of the country during this time. So a few of these shows, I have no idea what they were. But in the autumn of 1976, you could start your morning with 90 minutes 
of Sylvester and Tweety, Bugs, and the Roadrunner. Tarzan came on at 9.30, followed by the Shazam Isis Hour. Two new shows came on at 11, Arc 2 and Clue Club. Clue Club is the one that I have no recollection of whatsoever. At least I remember having heard of Arc 2, but that's possible that I've heard my geeky podcast friends recollect Arc 2, because I can't say I ever watched an episode of it. And again, I'd certainly never heard of Clue Club before. Noon brings us the Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids show, followed by Way Out Games and the CBS Children's Film Festival. Note, all times are Eastern Time Zone. In addition to my question about Clue Club, I'm curious, does anybody remember that Tarzan cartoon? I mean, how good or not so good was that? In other words, should I seek it out? Just curious. Also wanted to mention that this issue contains issue 15 of the Daily Planet for the week of August 9th, 1976. The headline story is Teen Titans Tackle Dr. Light, with the losers getting an article as well. The issues highlighted in the direct currents column are All-Star 63, Claw, number 10, Superman Family 180, Unexpected 176, Weird War Tales 49, and Weird Western Tales 37. I enjoyed these Daily Planet pages. It was a way of generally keeping up with what was going on in the DCU, or at least keeping up with what DC wanted to promote heavily to me as a preteen reader. Sadly, no Answer Man column this time. I wonder if that feature uh, came later in the Daily Planet's life. I don't want to steal from Ed Moore, who specializes in pointing out on Twitter ideas that other people should do as podcasts, but... If someone did a Daily Planet podcast doing a deep dive into each one of these pages, following up here nearly 50 years later, I'd listen. As I said, the date on that Daily Planet was August 9th, which is when the issue was on sale, despite carrying a cover date of November-December, which puts this issue squarely in the summer of the American Bicentennial, I imagine... That is why the story was placed in Washington. Now, to clarify, this was not one of the, quote, DC salutes the bicentennial issues. Those were ones from a few months before cover dated July or August, although on sale in April. And that really is a tricky situation for the publishers, especially back here when there was a four-month difference between the pub date and the newspaper stand expiration date? Where exactly do you fit in seasonal or time-stamped issues? Now, in terms of my own personal biography, and I hinted at this, 
But between 1975 and 1978, a time frame which does include the release of this issue and the bicentennial summer, I lived out of the country. My father was a civil servant in the U.S. Defense Department, and we lived in the Southeast Asian nation of Thailand during that time frame. The time frame when this issue was released. Thailand was an American ally in the Cold War, so our presence there seemed generally welcoming, at least to the extent that I experienced that as a 9 to 12-year-old. And so the American Embassy was where my dad worked. And we visited him there a couple of times over those years. Uh, there were two cool things about the embassy that I remember. One was at the PX, sold comic books. And I would buy some, and on more than one occasion, my dad would bring a few home from work for me. There was also one department store in Bangkok that sold comics. But the difference was at Central, uh, that was the department store, Central marked up their prices. So for example, a 30 cent comic book like this one, in the Thai currency, that should have been six baht. Basically a baht was a nickel. This should have been six baht. But at Central, I think they charged like 10 baht for their comics. So it always felt like a ripoff buying comics there as opposed to the PX, where, at least in my memory, they were sold at the U.S. cover price. So yeah, I think you can tell that my destiny to host this particular podcast, focusing on the cheapness of comic books, was pretty much set in stone nearly five decades ago in a nation far, far away. The other thing... I specifically remember about the embassy was that even though my dad was a civilian working for the Defense Department, the Marines at the guard shack always saluted him when he drove in. So back to the bicentennial. My recollections, which I confirmed with my much, much, much older sister, was that the event took place, ironically, at the British polo grounds in Bangkok, which had more open space, uh, like an open field, uh, than the U.S. Embassy had. What we recall is an afternoon of hamburgers and barbecue, and what I recall as a pretty great, no-holds-barred fireworks display. But the highlight of Bangkok's 1976 Independence Day mega-celebration, which rang a bell to me when my sister related this. Although, I probably remember it more from my mom's retelling of it than from my own recollections. But the story is that the Thai military's contribution to the celebration was that three of their paratroopers jumped to land at the polo grounds, which one of the three managed to actually accomplish. An unexpected gust of wind blew the other pair off target. Legend has it, and by legend, I mean my mom's retelling the story for the rest of her life. Legend has it that one landed atop a nearby apartment building and the other at a fairly busy intersection. For that one, 
a local police officer saw what was happening and managed to manage a safe landing. So let me ask you this. Are you suspicious about why I've spent so much time in this analysis section talking about hostess ads, publication histories overseas by centennials, and wayward paratroopers? Is it because I don't have tons of positive things to say about this comic? Well, sadly, you got me. First off, when you have the opportunity to use Talking Tawny, sorry, Mr. Talking Tawny in your comic, and you relegate him to two panels and one speech balloon, you've missed an opportunity. Because if you have a kid's book, and you have access to a well-dressed talking animal, you use him. Now, as I said, I understand the needs of this issue in terms of needing to reboot the title, to reset the series, so it, it more closely aligned to the TV show. And I know it's not this comic book's fault, but I don't think that helps this issue much. Because the idea of the van and traveling the nation, it seems like a clunky technique for a comic book, although it definitely works for a TV show. I'm not sure why those two media are so different, why I feel so differently about the same plot point being used in those two ways. But, I mean, we all know they aren't the same. You know, stories well fit for one mode of storytelling don't necessarily automatically work when transplanted into the other mode. So I had some problems with the story. It just seemed stodgy or clunky. And the dinosaur? Come on. That was absurd. The dinosaur and the caveman, those elements of the time travel. The dinosaur actually has more space on the cover than on the inside of the book, where the fight lasts just three panels, maybe, maybe half a page. And at least Savannah explains that he had to go to different times to get the caveman and the dinosaur, because they weren't existing at the same time. But again, that really was a bunch of needless and clumsy exposition. The story overall, it, 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 it was meh. I know it was trying to serve a number of purposes, some probably contradicting each other, but still, meh. And I don't think that this is me being a snob, turning up my nose at a kid's book. I read a ton of young adult novels and comics, lots of kid stuff, lots of all ages stuff, hundreds of Archie issues over the last few years. And when I pick up one of those books, I know the story will be simpler, more straightforward, fewer subplots. But sometimes those stories make sense. Sometimes they're fun. Sometimes they have characterization. Sometimes they have drama. At just about this same exact time, DC was producing Super Friends, another TV tie-in, I guess. And the stories in that tended to be much better than this one was. So yes, it's dumbed down a bit for the audience. 
I understand that. But that doesn't mean that good stories can't be told with that restriction. And this one just overall fell flat for me. Now, on the other hand, Kurt Schaffenberger's art needs to be mentioned here as as it's one of the strengths of the issue from my perspective. He was an excellent choice as artist for this era of the title as they were moving from reprints to new stories. I say this because of Schaffenberger's Silver Age pedigree. All of those Supergirl stories, Superboy, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and starting in 1946, in the Golden Age, Captain Marvel Jr. stories. So with all of that in his background, he was definitely the most logical choice as penciler for these issues. His comfort level with the inherent wackiness of Captain Marvel shines through. His Billy looks frail and his Captain Marvel looks huge. Savannah looks sniveling. Talking Tawny looks wonderful. It's a great choice. And he executed the art duties very, very well. But you know me. I am a story-first comic book reader. So how will that solid art choice affect my overall verdict on this issue? The verdict on Shazam! 26 just because a comic is for a younger audience, and just because it's a TV tie-in, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be held to some type of standard. And as you all know, the standards on this show are quite low. That's the glory of finding books in the quarter bin. But there is a standard. There is a bar. And even the presence of Mr. Talkie Tawny sadly can't pull this issue over that bar. I do not remember the last time this happened because I believe that it's been a long time. But Shazam 26, not worth a quarter. And yes, I am severely disappointed in myself for coming to this conclusion. E. Nelson Birdwell, it's not you. It's me. And with that shocking verdict, we've wrapped up our coverage of Shazam 26, bringing episode 192 of the Quarterman Podcast to a close. Next time, We observe, nay, we celebrate the official holiday of the Quarter Bin Podcast, Free Comic Book Day. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, my outrageous verdict, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm... Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin.
Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>